Kia ora. You are listening to a 2019 special event podcast from Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi o Tamaki. Sarah J. Mars is the number one New York Times best-selling author of the Throne of Glass series and a Court of Thorns and Roses series, as well as an international best-selling YA author. Sarah wrote the first incarnation of the Throne of Glass series when she was just 16, and it is now sold in 35 languages. Sarah J. Mars discusses her latest novel, Kingdom of Ash, the epic finale of the Throne of Glass series with Kieran Das, and this event is supported by Bloomsbury Publishing. Wow, I, I mean, like, I literally can't believe that I'm sitting here in Auckland talking to you guys, and then also, like, this is the last Throne of Glass event, like, yeah. I mean, maybe not ever, but How like, are you feeling? I, I'm feel like, backstage just now. I was on the verge of tears, to be honest. Like, I was in the bathroom, like, making sure that, like, I looked like a human being. Um, And I just was like, okay, don't cry. Don't get emotional. I did wear my waterproof mascara, so... Sarah, are you sure the tears had nothing to do with the Star Wars trailer? No. Um, okay, so I also just found out that like the next Star Wars movie has the trailer out, and I have missed it completely. Um, so I'm saving that for after this event. Um, is there an echo for you guys, or is that just like me? You having an echo? Yeah, like a bad echo. No, you guys are having an echo. Because <laughs> I'm having an echo, and <laughs> it's okay. All right, we'll power through it. <laughs> I'm sure they're on it right now. So Sarah, Kingdom of Ash, the final battle. How does it feel to come to the end of the Throne of Glass series? I mean, how did you know when it was time to wind the series up? Um, I'd always planned for this book to happen. Like I knew what I wanted to happen in this book. So I kind of, it wasn't really a decision of like, oh, this is the end. If anything, there was so much stuff that I wanted to pack into this book that it was really hard for me just to be like, okay, like, should we have another one after this? Should I divide it into two parts and have like two 1,000 page novels? Um, no, <laughs> no, that would not have been, like we actually, this was an actual conversation at one point because, um, So when Kingdom of Ash was finally like done, 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 like ready to go to the printer in two days, um, I got an email from my editor saying like, we've got a little problem. Um, The book is 1,008 pages and the glue that we purchased to bind the book together isn't strong enough to hold a book any longer than 1,000 pages. And we had like two days left, like two days left before it had to go to the printer. And if it didn't go to the printer then, like it would not have come out on time. So we had to find a way to shave like 10 pages off of this book. But at that point, like everything that I wanted to happen was in the Mm. actual book. Um, And so we were like, should we just cut the book in half and whatever? I was like, no, that would be so stupid and annoying. Um, But so the amazing um, production team at Bloomsbury was able to like find ways to reconfigure the pages so that like 
we just kind of like made the text a little smaller and the margins a little wider. Um, so we wound up like shaving it down. So it clocked in at like what, 996 pages, whatever it is. Um, but I think I lost about five years off of my life just in the sheer stress of that situation. Um, in two days. Oh my God, it was, it was crazy. Um, but you know, I look at Kingdom of Ash and it's like, it's crazy to me that this series is, it's not quite done because um, we have other Throne of Glass things coming down the pipeline, but um, you know, this was, I finally got to, I wrapped up the series in the way that I wanted to. Um, and I began writing Throne of Glass when I was like 15, 16 years old, and I'm now 33. Um, so I've been working on this series for literally half of my life, mm. uh, which is crazy. Um, but I also see like all my journeys from when I was like growing up, you know, woven into the pages of these books and not in a, a literal sense, but there are just some, some lines and some scenes and some moments when I, I think about them and I remember where I was when I got the idea for that. Um, so it's been really emotional having this book, you know, even the book's been out for what, like six months yeah. now, um, maybe longer than that. And I'm still like not, over it. Um, also, fair warning, because the book's been out for so long, I will be spoiling things in <laughs> this discussion. Sure, everybody um, here has read it. I mean, I have had to wait so long to finally be able to talk about what happens in this book, in the series. Um, and I mean, when Kingdom of Ash came out in October, I had a tour in the US and the UK, and I couldn't talk about the book in detail then because not everyone in the audience had read it yet. Um, but I'm assuming like most of you have read it, and if not, like tough shit, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna talk about things because I, I still have yeah. feelings about what happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I, I'm so, like, I hope it doesn't sound like arrogant in saying that I'm just really proud no, of all. like the fact that like this book like represents like, you know, this whole series, but this book in particular represents the fact that, you know, I had this crazy dream when I was a teenager that I wanted to get just, just one book published in my life. That was all I wanted. And if it took me until I was 85 years old, <laughs> I was willing to bust my ass to make that happen. Um, but this was my dream and I would wish, it's so corny, but like I would wish on every single star or if I could throw a coin into a fountain, if there was any kind of local legend where they were like, if you do this thing, like your wish will come true. I did it. Um, and the, the wish always was, I want to be a published author one day. I want to have my book published. Um, and so I look at this book and I think of that girl that I was, that teenager, and then um, that girl at university who was wishing on like every stupid star. Um, and I realized that, you know, holy shit, like I made it. <laughs> like, what are the odds of that? Um, and so I'm just filled with this pride, but also, you know, such gratitude for all of you guys who, who made this possible. Um, so I, I mean, and now I'm like a mom too, so I just, I always cry, like just, in general, like I feel like becoming <laughs> becoming a mom has made me like even more of an emotional wreck most of the time. Um, but I found it really fitting though that Kingdom of Ash came out um, just a couple months after my son was born, so it was kind of like one chapter of my life closing and the next one beginning. Yeah. 
I mean, Aileen and you have grown up basically together. You've been writing since you're a teenager. You've grown up together. So what has she taught you over the years? Oh, this is so corny. But if you know me, you know I'm like the corniest person (laughs) of all time. No, your question wasn't corny. I am corny for the answer I'm about to tell you. Okay. So, um, I am very much a introvert. Um, If left to my own devices, I would live in my pajamas and never put on a bra and just stay in my house, like quietly binge watching TV and writing my books. Um, And when I was kind of thrust onto this amazing publishing journey, um, you know, I found that like, holy crap, like I had to get up on stage and talk to people. Um, And when I was in school, the thought of public speaking filled me with Mm. such dread. Like if I had to give a report in front of my class in high school, I honestly would contemplate Mm. throwing myself down the stairs instead of of having to speak in class. Um, And I found actually that as soon as I got up on stage the first few times, it was a lot easier to talk about something that I loved and was excited about than it was to talk about like, you know, molecular biology or something where I was like, I don't understand a single fucking thing I'm saying. Um, (laughs) But I was, you know, I had all these various scenarios, you know, as I was working to make this dream happen. Um, And even outside of publishing, you know, moments when I didn't quite feel very brave at all. And I, and here's the corny part of my answer. I literally would say um, to myself, my name is Sarah J. Mass, and I will not be afraid. Um, and <laughs> thank you for clapping and not rolling your eyes, because I, I, I would do it. And I mean, it actually made me feel stronger and braver. Um, and there were so many situations, um, just even in my own personal life, where um, I would kind of think to myself, all right, what would Aileen do? Mm. Um, and I would like channel her and like mm. get her little swagger. Um, and so I'll always be grateful for that, for the fact that you know, Aileen gave me courage during moments when I didn't feel very brave at all. Um, and it's weird because she's a character in my head. Like she's not real, but she is very real to me. Um, and you know, some authors think of their characters as their babies. Aelin was never my baby. She was more like my, my friend and my, my sister, but also a part of my soul. Um, and somehow writing about that swagger and arrogance, just it gave me courage when I needed it. Um, and it's the same actually with Manon. Um, she, Manon walked into my life at a point when I was scared to death. So when Throne of Glass first came out, um, it was successful, but not like it was not a bestseller. It didn't hit any bestseller list. Um, and I had only sold the first, I want to say three books to my publisher. We hadn't even sold the entire series. They, you know, I love my publisher so much, but they very wisely didn't want to commit to like eight books um, without, you know, the guarantee that, hey, they would do well. Um, So there was a lot of pressure riding on Crown of Midnight before it came out, um, specifically in the States to hit the New York Times bestseller list. And, 
you find when you're a writer in the publishing industry that so many things are out of your control, including whether you're like deemed worthy enough to be on the bestseller list. Um, and I was just for months, like just terrified that this dream that I had that was finally just starting to come true would just kind of implode on itself. Um, and in those months leading up to Crown of Midnight coming out, I was working on Air of Fire. And Manon had walked into my head in the months leading up to that. Um, and she, writing about her in Air of Fire, was exactly what I needed at this point in my life where I was scared shitless about the future. Um, and you know, here's Manon, where she isn't scared of anybody, and she doesn't give a fuck what anybody thinks. Um, and I needed that. I needed to write that character more than I, I realized. I even realized at the time. Um, but there was something about the fact that she was very much her own creature, and she was free. Um, and I just found writing her to be so liberating and empowering, which I know sounds weird, because if you think back to Air of Fire, that first scene with her, um, she is literally like just gutting these farmers yeah. in a little house and then like stalks them through the cornfield and rips them to shreds. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't know what it says about me as a person <laughs> that I found that to be so empowering. Um, but Manon, you know, she, she also gave me courage at various points in my life when I needed it most. Um, and funny story, so when Manon first walked into my head, um, the first scene I saw was that scene where she's in that farmhouse and I was listening to this piece of music from the, um, did you guys ever see the Fright Night remake like years ago with, um, <laughs> what is it? Colin Farrell, is that? Yeah, yeah. yeah, like it's so good. It's an awesome movie and the soundtrack's really, really good too. Um, like really dark and driving and ominous and I was listening to this one piece of music from the soundtrack and um, when I get ideas in my head, it's almost like I'm watching a movie. Um, and so I was listening to the music and I literally saw this scene play out where this beautiful young woman was hiding in a closet and she was kind of like looking through the little slats in the closet and watching as these farmers came to ransack her house and try and find her. And um, she was a witch and they wanted to do to her what bad men do to witches. Um, and the music kept kind of going and going and I saw it all play out and I saw the exact moment where she pushed the closet door open and then sealed the bedroom door and I realized at that exact moment that she wasn't the prey she was the predator in this situation and she had laid a trap in her house for these horrible men. Um, and I watched as she you know, flicked her hands and the claws came out and then you know, the teeth, the iron teeth came out. Um, and then I just literally saw it all play out as she eviscerated those men and gutted them and ripped out their throats with her teeth. Um, and I was instantly obsessed with her um, and so and then an hour later like as like yeah I had that initial moment of like just that inspiration and then I was listening to um, a piece from the first Star Wars movie actually about an hour later um, and this the piece like 
it wound up being the piece that inspired what happens with the 13, when the 13 sacrifice themselves in Kingdom of Ash. And I had never met these characters before. This literally was the first hour of their creation, and I saw that first scene with Manon, and then I saw that entire, like, you know, sacrificial, like, run that they make on those witch towers. And I wound up, like, literally sobbing at my desk. Mm. Um, and I had to know, like, who these women, these witches were. Um, and so when I wrote Air of Fire, I got to write that fun first scene. Um, and when I turned in the book a couple months later, um, my editor was like, so Throne of Glass is like this big, and Crown of Midnight's <laughs> like this big, and then Air of Fire is like this big. Um, and my editor, so she wound up leaving the industry to go have a career in speech pathology. Um, but and maybe this is what broke her. But she said, she said to me, like, um, she said, you know, I think it's important for books to be the same size on the shelf in a series. I was like, exhibit A, Harry Potter. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We go from like this, 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 to like this, this, this. Um, and she said, well, you know, this book is, Air of Fire is really long, and we could like cut a lot of that length by cutting out this random witch character. Um, <laughs> she did not really get Manon from the, she came to love Manon, but she did not understand like why she was suddenly here. And I went to the mat for Manon. I said, she has mm -hmm. to start in this book in Air of Fire so that when readers get to Kingdom of Ash, and the 13 make that last run and save everybody's asses um, so that that means something, um, that when Manon's heart is breaking and she realizes that she does have a heart um, and that it is literally shattering as she's watching her friends sacrifice themselves, that that feels earned and it, and mm. it, it means something and it hopefully will move readers as much as it moved me in those initial moments of creation and then, I mean, Jesus, like when I finally wrote that scene, um, that was just like, I, I, I've cried a lot throughout my books, <laughs> um, but this, it was like, I was almost like beyond tears, like where I just, I was crying, but also like literally like shaking as I wrote it. Um, and. I had to go lie down for about like an hour <laughs> afterwards. Um, and I revise a lot as a writer. Um, my first drafts are absolute garbage and I usually wind up rewriting giant So you refine it and refine it. Yeah, I mean, I refine it and, refine. and I rewrite things, I restructure plots, um, but with that scene in Kingdom of Ash when the 13 sacrifice themselves, that scene is almost untouched from what came out of me in that first run when it just like poured out of my heart. Um, yeah. And that's very rare for me, but I think that's because that scene, I had been waiting so long to write that scene, but also it just, like I was channeling, channeling it and you know, my heart was breaking right alongside Manon's and it's still, it's one of my favorite scenes that I've ever written even though it just destroyed me. Um, but I mean, I grew up like wanting to like see like the ladies getting to do like more badass shit, like yeah. and like like in TV and yeah. movies and in books and like you know having the thirteen like get to have that moment where they literally like they save 
everybody. Mm. Like they mm. save the course of the war. Um, We're just speaking to that. The dedication in Kingdom, to, Kingdom of Ash reads to my parents who taught me to believe that girls can save the world. And I just wanted to ask you, I mean, your character's very strong, independent, kind of kick-ass characters. You know, how important do you think it is for these characters to be represented in young adult fiction? I, mean, I think it's incredibly important. I mean, I, I literally grew up watching Indiana Jones, and I would daydream that I was Indiana running from that boulder in the temple, or you know, I was Luke Skywalker battling Darth Vader. Um, and I clung to the few like examples of those kick-ass ladies that I could find. And um, two of the big ones for me were Buffy and Sailor Moon. Um, <laughs> what a heavy combination. And they sound like they're different, but they're actually not. Like they yeah. were literally like, they were both like terrible students, like me. Um, and they, you know, were kind of the, what society considers to be like traditionally like girly girls, but then they were also tasked with these enormous burdens and responsibilities to save the world again and again. Um, and both Buffy and Sailor Moon were surrounded by a whole array of really interesting women who were strong in their own ways. Um, you know, in Buffy you had Willow, uh, who yeah. was so painfully shy at the beginning of the series that she could like. She could barely talk to anyone. And then by the end of Buffy, like she's like one of the most powerful people in the world. Um, and so, you know, when I was growing up, I was lucky enough to have those examples. I think I, you know, Buffy was airing on TV like when I was 13, 14, like at that pivotal age. Um, but I, you know, the books that I write now kind of arose out of this need that I wanted to see more of that and I wanted to have more examples just for myself. Like I began writing these stories just for myself so that I could have, you know, ladies doing kick-ass stuff and um, that still is kind of what drives me is just that excitement of seeing, you know, a lady like, like Lysandra in, mm. I mean like all of the series, but like in Empire of Storms when she's in Skulls Bay and she like turns into the sea dragon and just like takes on everybody and then like you know, she's the sea and the sea wyverns oh my god like that whole sequence with her i mean she's lysandra getting to do all that badass stuff like i sometimes i get like so amped up when i'm writing that i literally can't sit like and i just okay lysandra's so, an interesting character isn't she because i mean like all your characters that they're not perfect, they're multi-dimensional, some of them are flawed and kind of end up in different places to where maybe you expected them to? Yeah, I mean, Lysandra, okay, so Lysandra yeah. was, she was, she made her first appearance in the Assassin's Blade novellas and I will admit that mm -hmm. when she was in those novellas, I didn't have like a master plan for her. She just was kind of this stereotypical, like bitchy girl. Yeah. Um, and then, I don't know how, or why it happened. But I was in the car with my husband one day and the song came on the radio and I absolutely 1000% hate the name of this song. Um, it's called Smack My Bitch Up. The Prodigy. By Prodigy. <laughs> right. Yeah. The song's really good, but I Driving kind of yeah, like, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, and it has this moment in the middle of the song where everything kind of like goes like super like slow-mo feeling. Um, <laughs> and the song was playing and out of the blue, just out of the blue, like again, like I saw like this movie in my head of this beautiful dark-haired young lady 
literally like being attacked by these guys and then like lunging for them and as she's leaping for them she shapeshifts into like this giant like snow leopard type creature and like lands on them and like rips out their throats all in like like the span of like one really sick like cool movement and I just had it was like a lightning bolt where I was like holy shit that's Lysandra and holy shit she's a shapeshifter what um (laughs) And then I was like, oh, fuck, fuck, I gotta, like, write, I gotta, like, bring her back in. Um, Stuck with it. And so that, I mean, in um, Queen of Shadows, I mean, that's where she makes her appearance, and that was the perfect place to bring her back in, and then also kind of really symbolize what, um, you know, people who had lost their magic for 10 years had gone through, but then also what it felt like to get that power back again. Um, And that moment in Queen of Shadows when, like, Adian and Rowan are about to be killed yeah. in the tunnels and Lysandra just appears and shreds those sh- like s- soldiers like I just that was one of those scenes where I could barely sit still um, and then she like vomits on Lorcan later which was like <laughs> my favorite thing. I, just, I just spat I was so excited by that oh my god poor Lorcan uh, <laughs> I love him um, but I mean Speaking of Lorcan and scenes where I couldn't like sit still in um, Kingdom of Ash when Elid goes to save him from like the like impending tidal wave, um, that scene I was so amped up that I literally okay like I literally was sitting in my chair like this as if I was straddling a horse like pretending to be Elid and like trying to type as I was pretend riding a horse. It was. Not my like most graceful moment, but it just shows like how into these scenes I get, and like I was just was so like amped up. I was like yeah, like I was like riding on that horse alongside a lead, like in a panic, and then I mean like goddamn Aelin like comes down from the sky and destroys the wave. Like that scene, like I was waiting so long to write that scene, and then it just kind of like exploded out of me. And as a writer, I live for moments like that yeah. when I li- like I'm just so excited that I can barely like function. Um, and Kingdom of Ash was just like full of moments like that for me. Well, one of your strengths, I mean, going back to what you were saying before about these scenes that just sort of come to you so fully kind of realized and they're kind of inspired by listening to music or just your thoughts, um, you obviously have a very vivid imagination, (laughs) but do these, I mean, do you have to really plot them out, these worlds, or do they just come to you fully formed? How do you create these kind of otherworldly worlds? I mean, they kind of, they sort of come half made, um, where as I write that first draft, I'll get bits and pieces in the overall structure, but then as I revise in each round, more and more details will reveal themselves to me, especially as I ask myself questions, you know, about, Mm. and even, they might not even be things that make it onto the page for you guys, Um, but you know, if someone's eating an orange, then I have to think about the climate in which the characters are living in. Like, are there hothouses that can produce oranges? Are the oranges imported from somewhere? And what are the trade laws like? And what's their relationship with that (laughs) kingdom? And like, it's a good thing that I don't include all that stuff because 
I would find it to be boring <laughs> to read, but sometimes it makes like, you know, little lines will make an appearance here and there. Where I'll just call them, you know, a, a so-and-so orange or something. Um, and those little details can kind of do a lot of heavy lifting for world building. Mm. Um, but world building is one of my favorite, mm. favorite things to do. I'm a I'm currently working on the first book in a new series called Crescent City. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited that you guys just clapped for that. Um, and this book just keeps getting longer and longer and longer because I'm in that stage right now where I'm asking myself questions and filling in you know, the world building and you know, as the characters are walking down a street in this city, like I'm looking at like the shop signs or looking down alleys and seeing like what is there. Yeah. I'm thinking about what, what does the air smell like? You know, what is, what's on the ground? What's in the sky? Um, and I, it's like, it's like falling in love. It's like that kind of feeling where I'm just like in a constant state of like discovery and joy. Um, and Crescent City, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, so it's my first like, technically like adult mm. book um but if you've read my court of thorns and roses books uh, <laughs> it's like the same level of uh, <laughs> content um and i mean it's 1000 percent adult because bryce my main character she's uh, 25 years old so there's no pass in her office <laughs> ya um and it's contemporary fantasy so if you it's set in a completely different world from ours, um, and it's like if you lived in the world of Thorn of Glass or A Court of Thorns and Roses, and you jumped ahead two, three thousand years into the future, um, and they had you know cell phones and cars and all of that stuff, like that's what kind of the world of Crescent City is like, where it's a different world, but they've got all of our modern technology and all the magical creatures that you can imagine all kind of live together in these very complex hierarchies um, alongside humans um, who are, you know, kind of bottom of the food chain, as one would expect. Um, and it's just, it's been so fun. Like, I'm still working on it, so I don't have, like, my elevator pitch for you guys. So this um, is House of Earth and Blood, Yeah, so, right? this, so yeah. Um, the overarching series title is Crescent City, and then, like, each book will have its own little subtitle. So the first book is House of Earth and Blood. Um, and it's just been so fun to write about, you know, like a, a wolf shifter, like, texting with an angel like, like it's like really fun to have modern conveniences finally because like if some horrible like very important plot thing like has to occur they can just pick up their phone and call them they don't need to send a message or like you know it's been really fun to write in a modern setting and um i you know it feels really different from anything i've written but it also has some staples of what you can expect from my books, like snarky heroines and broody, muscled, <laughs> tattooed guys. Um, so very oh my much on brand. Oh my god. Oh my, okay, so Josh, my husband, he, um, he's been reading the, the latest draft, and one of his comments recently was, why are there so many attractive men in this book? <laughs> and I said to him, because it's Fantasy. Um, <laughs> this is fantasy. Um, and I was like, but you're right. I'll like, you know, I'll, I'll tone it down. No, I won't. Don't tone it down. Um, no, no. Um, but I mean, the book right now is currently about like 800 pages of banter. So I need to find a way to, I love, 
I love banter. <laughs> banter is my favorite, but I need to find a way to like rein it all in and like, you know, yeah. maybe like make one guy like not as hot as the other ones. <laughs> just, just to even it out a little bit. So do you have a different approach, I mean, writing for, you know, adult? What, has, has it been refreshing for you, this sort um, of shifting gears? It hasn't really been any different at all. I mean, by the, <laughs> by the end of, you know, Throne of Glass, I mean, there was yeah, plenty yeah. of adult content. Um, and then, I mean, the Akatar books, um, you know, those, those are, I kind of, they just are. They are what they are. Um, and... I mean, so it's not, I didn't really like set out and was like, this is an adult book and these are the rules mm -hmm. I have to follow. I just kind of wrote the story that was in my heart and the one that excited me. Um, and I let my publisher decide, yes, this is adult. <laughs> um, right now, I think the word fuck is on every single page. Um, <laughs> at least twice on some pages. Um, <laughs> so that, I mean, just, I think I just was like getting something out of my system with that. So I need to like, that maybe might be pared down, not because of any publisher pressure or anything, just because I'm like, yeah, this yeah. is excessive, even for someone with a dirty mouth like mine. Um, but yeah, I mean, there hasn't really been any difference. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, literally the only difference is that I'm working with a different set of people at my publisher. Um, but thankfully, like, it's like a, been a really smooth transition, and I'm just, I don't know. I'm so excited for you guys to read this book, because, I mean, we'll see how I'm feeling by the time I've, like, read this about 20 times, and I'm thoroughly sick of the book. Published um, next year, right? Yeah, so it's yeah. coming out in January 28th, 2020, I want to say. The end of January yeah. um, 2020, which 2020 sounds like the future, right? Like, <laughs> that doesn't yeah. sound like 20... Futuristic like Blade 20, Runner. Oh, yeah. my God, like 2019 <laughs> sounds okay, but, like, 2020, like... <laughs> I feel like we should have hoverboards and mm -hmm. jetpacks. 2020 sounds like it's a long time away. Um, I'm also really confused because 90s fashion is back. Come right back round. But I'm yeah. also really happy because I've been wearing scrunchies since like, before it became cool to wear scrunchies again. Um, so it worked out for me, thankfully. Yeah. Also, I, loved, I loved the 90s. I loved 90s fashion. It was so awful that I'm just so happy <laughs> it's back. Sarah, you've said that you are a reader and a fangirl first and foremost, and then a writer. But what's the relationship for you between the two? How do they kind of feed into each other? I don't know. I mean, I, when I was, tw like, what, 11, 12, that's when I really got the writing bug. And I think, you know, it happened because I started reading... Well, when I was very young, like my, my favorite thing to read were fairy tales and folklore, and then I got a little older and I realized like, oh, they're like those things for like adults and they're called fantasy novels. Um, and I mean, they kind of, I mean, there's nothing that I love more than being done with my deadlines for the day and curling up in bed and like dimming all the like glaring lights and putting on my soft little like reading lamp hmm. and just like curling up in bed and reading a book and yeah. losing myself in that like that's my place of like that's how I recharge and that's how I like comfort myself and you know when things are good I love to read but then like also like when things in my life have been like shitty or hard um there have been times when books felt like they were literally the only thing that kept me from completely falling into despair. And there are some books 
that I think like literally like might have like saved my life. Yeah. And I'm gonna cry talking about this, but like I, and that's like such a key part of me. Um, and the books have always been that comfort for me, um, where they made me feel like I wasn't alone. And I knew that they were characters that didn't exist, but just reading about those books and having that excitement of lo losing myself in a world like literally made me feel like I wasn't alone at times, even as an adult, like even recently in my life, um, it made me feel like I wasn't alone and it gave me hope. Um, and I can't, express my gratitude towards those authors enough. And I mean, you guys know by now that I cry a lot, um, but whenever I meet those authors and I try to explain to them what those books did for me at a time in my life when I desperately needed those stories, when I try to thank them for that, I always hysterically cry. And like, I will go up to them, like as a like, you know, colleague, um, and I still just sob. Um, one of my favorite authors ever is um, J.R. Ward. Um, she writes amazing, amazing paranormal romance. And I, um, we have a mutual friend who just wanted to torture me recently. So we, I was hanging out with my friend and she called up J.R. Ward on the phone. Um, and I got to speak to her for the first time ever, ever, ever. And I just, like, first of all, I was in a state of, like, cold panic, like, trying to come up with something, like, cool to say to, like, a woman who I completely idolize. Um, but I just began babbling to her about how her books got me through some shit in my life. Um, and I just broke down crying on the phone. Um, <laughs> And I mean, that's, so I mean, the writing stuff, it's, you know, it, I don't think I would be a writer if I hadn't discovered, yeah. you know, these books that like ignited that in me. But, you know, reading is still the thing that brings me to so much joy. I mean, you guys know what it's like. Like, you know, when you like open a book and like you start reading like the first paragraph and you're like, oh shit, I'm gonna like this. Yeah. I'm gonna get comfy. I'm gonna go to the bathroom now so that like in two <laughs> hours when I really have to pee, I can just keep reading. Um, like I love that feeling. Um, You're in good company in this room, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean like readers, like book people are the best people. And yeah. when I was growing up, um, I went to this like really kind of like snooty elite high school that was not my kind of thing. Um, I appreciate the education I received, but the it was not really, mm -hmm. like I, I did not fit in. I, my group of friends, we were kind of like the outsiders. We called ourselves the Goonies. Um, <laughs> we literally made t-shirts. We were each like- Is that after the film? Yeah, like you know, like, you know yeah. the Goonies, the film, yeah, like yeah. the 80s film, like we watched that movie at least once a week. Like we were like, fully committed to the Goonies lifestyle, but we, we were all kind of like artsy in our own way. And, um, but you know, I was really the only one in our group and it certainly felt like I was the only one at school who was reading fantasy novels and was like really into the, the writing stuff. Um, and so it was so amazing to eventually you know, leave high school and eventually graduate from college and then to discover the online world of book yeah. people and then to meet fellow readers, you know, as I've you know, traveled the world and to realize that we loved all the same books and there's like nothing like, people. I just, I love that. I love, like, it makes me so happy now because I remember a time when like no one I knew had read the books that mm -hmm. I was reading and obsessed with. Um, and now I love that I can like hang out with people and talk about books and like people get it. 
Um, so we I finally uh, found my group. Yeah. We better uh, get to these uh, <laughs> our questions. Okay. These questions. We have some questions. audience questions that have been pre-submitted. Okay. So I'm going to take some out and I'll read them out and you can okay. All answer. Right. So thank you everyone for submitting these questions. <laughs> All right. I'm like so, scared but also excited for these. So the first one is how do you pick the names of your characters? Which is a very good question. Um, That's from okay. um, Kate, Kate, Caitlin. Okay, so sometimes I just hear a character's <laughs> name. Like with Crescent City, the main character, her name's Bryce Quinlan. I have no fucking idea where that name came from. <laughs> it literally just came to me one day. Um, with Selena, uh, that name was kind of like a combination of like Greek mythology. There's like a harpy, like a, a named Seleno with like an O at the end. But I was like, that sounds really masculine. So I'm just gonna swap the O for an A. And Seleno like means dark one in ancient Greek or whatever. Mm. This was a long time ago. Whatever it was, I just thought that Selena with an A at the end sounded better. Um, Aelin, no idea where that came from. Um, Kaol. LOL, um, <laughs> no idea, no idea. Um, and then, I mean, Dorian, I think, came from the fact that I was reading, um, what is it, like the portrait of Dorian Gray, Dorian picture Gray. of Dorian Gray, and like I thought Dorian Gray was like smoking hot. Um, and so when I was like, here's like a hot prince, like what's a, a sexy name? I was like, oh, Dorian, that's hot. Um, so it is, I am not like Tolkien, like inventing languages and names that stem from the language that mean something, no. Like if I need to come up with a name now, I go on like babynames.com. Yeah, yeah. And and I'll like type in like like sexy Celtic sounding names. Um, and those then, names have got a lot more wild now. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and I, I also like I don't know. I kind of just like if it's a guy, I'll be like, what name sounds the sexiest? Um, what sounds hot? Um, and I'll like if I'm I'll make like lists of names and kind of narrow it down one by one. Um, so it is, and so it's kind of a combination of me like just dicking around on baby naming sites and then just like hearing names. And so it is not an intellectual process by any means. So I've got another question from Madison. If all the characters were in the Hunger Games, who would win? Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I feel like we need to like assume that in this Hunger Games, magic somehow gets nullified, right? Because that would give everyone an unfair advantage. And let's throw in the Akatar characters just so I can have more options. Okay, all right. Oh my God, this is amazing. Um, okay, so I feel like Reese and Cassian and Asriel would like team up again like they did when they were kids in the blood right and they would be this like little hunting trio um, that would kill everyone um, <laughs> and I think Rowan and Aelin would team up and they would probably wind up like teaming up with Feyre at some point and like make an alliance and I like I'm literally just letting this like stream of consciousness right now, so please take this with a grain of salt. Um, I'm trying to. I feel like Adian might. I feel like he might like like die early. 
because he would be like he would be that asshole that runs for the cornucopia while like I don't know like Amron has like rigged like a trap to kill him. Um, I feel like Amron actually might win the Hunger Games because everyone would underestimate her and she's just so scary. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm gonna go home after this and like mm. play this out in my head, yeah. and like maybe like write write it as like fanfic like on my phone. <laughs> Sarah, one question that keeps coming up is, who was your favorite ship? Ship. Okay. There's three I in mean, here. So I mean, far. I guess it's like you've read the books. Like my ships all kind of played out, and like. Um, Okay, we'll do like Throne of Glass and Akatar. Um, so, Throne of Glass, I mean, Aelin and Rowan were just like my favorites. Like, okay, so when I wrote the first draft of Throne of Glass, I was in like high school and college, and that first draft was like literally like a different novel from what you guys wound up reading. Like, it was bad. Like, it was not good. Um, and I spent all those years like literally figuring out what the hell I wanted this book to be about, um, what I wanted to do with this series. And um, so Aelin wasn't with Rowan in that first draft. And they had this crazy chemistry though. And at the end of the day, like after I finished writing my scenes, I would open up this like secret smut folder on my computer <laughs> and I would write these like smutty scenes with like Aelin <laughs> and Rowan like hooking up in like the bathhouse or something like that. Um, where like, oh, they're best friends but they can't resist the pull like any longer. Um, and it was so fucking weird because like I was writing the story at the, like I was writing the actual story at that time. Like I could have just gone in and been like, and now they're together like kiss, kiss, kiss. Um, but no. Like, like it was like I, I committed to like the path that she was on at that point and then like I had my secret like smutty like weirdness that was going on um, but then when I finally like you know finished like that first draft and really got a sense of what I wanted to do with the series I was like okay so aside from the fact that I'm a pervert I feel like <laughs> I'm being told by my like subconscious and like you know my creative brain that Aelin and Rowan should be together. Um, and that I should make all this like smut a reality. Um, <laughs> and so when I, re I rewrote everything after I graduated from university, because um, I knew like to get published, like it had to do, like I had to rewrite everything that I wrote when I was a teenager and that it was mm. rough. So, and I had figured out during those years what I really wanted to do with this series. So. I started over with literally a blank page. Um, and I knew that I still wanted Rowan to come into the series at Arrow Fire. And I wanted him and Aelin to find each other when they were both profoundly broken people. Um, and I wanted them to have that journey together from that place of darkness and grief and hurt. Um, into a place of like light and love and, and joy. Um, so I knew that he, we had to wait until like air of fire for my love Rowan to appear. Um, but that, I also like, I, you know, I love Dorian and Kale and I loved that whole setup with them at the beginning. And I mean, 
what person like wouldn't go for those guys if like they were thrown into this like high highly stressful situation and then there's the sexy prince and then the brooding captain like I would go for them <laughs> um, and I also wanted Aelin to have those journeys between, you know, falling in and out of love. You know, she had Sam, oh my God, poor Sam. Um, and I mean, one of the, speaking of Sam, like one of the, like, I guess like gut check tests I did for myself with, you know, the, the Rowan, like romance was I said to myself, okay, if Aelin was with Kaol and Sam miraculously came back from the dead, would she be with, would she go with Sam or would she stay with Kaol? And I said, you know what, she would probably go be with Sam again. Um, and then I was like, okay, well, if she was with Rowan and Sam came back from the dead and was like, I love you and missed you so much, blah, 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 um, who would she be with? Um, and I thought, there's no way. Like, I just knew in my gut, I was like, there's no way she would leave. Rowan for Sam, and she would say, you know, Sam, I loved you, but I've found this man meat, <laughs> this muscular warrior prince. Um, and I think also, like, if Aelin had even, like, you know, gone off with Sam for a minute, like, Rowan would have, like, gone right after her and been like, oh, no, we're talking about this. We're sorting our shit out, because you, you and me were forever. Um, and so, like, that really, like, confirmed to me. Like, these are the weird, like, strange things that I do in my spare time. I, like, <laughs> give myself these scenarios. Um, but with, you know, so that was kind of how I knew. Um, but I also, you know, when I finally went to rewrite the whole series, I allowed me to have, like, the time to fully develop everything. And when I wrote Air of Fire, I wanted their, the start of their romance to feel, like to not be so completely obvious in that book. Um, and it's funny, okay, so in the first draft of Air of Fire, you know when Rowan bites Aelin like against the tree? That was a lot more erotic than what's in the book. There was some grinding of hips. <laughs> and my editor was like, I think you're like, you know, you're getting a little too excited right now. <laughs> Let's maybe tone it back a little bit. Um, but so then, you know, I obviously did that, but I wanted, I wanted you guys to be able to, you know, read the rest of the series and then, you know, reread Air of Fire and kind of see those kernels of that, like, romantic tension starting early yeah. on with them. Um, I don't even remember. Oh, my, what was my favorite ship? Okay, so Rowan, <laughs> I mean, so... I mean, Rowan and Aelin, you know, they've been my favorite. I mean, Rowan is still the background on my cell phone. Um, it's a piece of fan art by uh, Coralie Jubineau, who's, like, amazingly talented and, off and awesome. Um, but, yeah, so there... But then I also, like, I loved um, Elide and Lorcan. Like, I don't know... Like, okay, I am such a sucker for, like hate to love but also like a marriage of convenience trope which like they're like Elite and Lorcan kind of were where like they weren't officially married in Empire of Storms but like they had to pretend to be husband and wife and like I love that shit like that is so much fun it's so much fun for me to read in like other people's books but also like when I was writing that like 
I like didn't want to write anything else like in that book. I just wanted to write about the two of them. And like I must have reread that like kiss, that first kiss scene between them like 20 times. Like I was like so like and I'm writing these damn books. Like I can, you know, like I I just was so into it and I I love them and then I mean Lysandra and Adian, they're like I love I loved them and I don't know, like all the ships, I love them and I mean, in Akatar, I mean, Feyre and Reese, that's like my, like, that whole journey in A Court of Mist and Fury is probably one of my favorite that I've ever written. And can I tell you this, like, sort of embarrassing but also awesome thing that happened to me with that book? Okay. Please do. So, okay, well, we'll jump. So with Akatar, when I was writing Akatar, that was the first time I ever had like an on-the-page sex scene, um, and it required me to have about three glasses of wine to get through, <laughs> um, just because the entire time I was writing it, I was like, my father is going to read this. Um, <laughs> And so I needed that, you know, liquid yeah. courage to get me through it. And obviously, like, I got over that fear because I wrote Mist and Fury, where <laughs> you have, like, a three-day sex marathon. Um, and so before Mist and Fury came out, I, um, I called up my grandmother, and I said, Grandma, you, and she reads all my books. My family, like... I, I love them so much, but they somehow insist on reading all my books. They all I, do. I beg yeah. them not to. Um, and so I called up my grandma, and I was like, Grandma, you know, A Court of Mist and Fury is about to come out. Um, it's got a lot of graphic sexual material. I don't think you should read it. And my grandma just goes, hmm, well, that sounds right up my alley. <laughs> I literally was like, my whole life is a lie. I don't know who this woman is. This woman tucked me into bed at night. Like, what? Um, she has a life too. Oh my God, my grandma. I love her so much. But um, so, you know, Mist and Fury. My, my grandma loved that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, I got another. I mean, Mist and Fury and Air of Fire, I feel like, are almost like parallel novels where they're both like healing books in a way. And I, I loved, you know, writing Feyre's journey from that broken yeah. place and, you know, Reese, you know, Reese's own healing journey and how they, you know, both discover that they are worthy of love and that they can love someone else. And, you know, that, like, their whole, I, I love, like, that. Mist and Fury might be like one of my favorite books that I've ever written in part because of that journey on like, you know, the emotional level and then also that three-day bone marathon um, <laughs> that my grandma read. Um, 